like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Emma Larking. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University and I love the program Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on the AM dial. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And if you'd like to listen to any of the previous episodes All you need to do is go to the 3CR website. So you can Google Radical Philosophy 3CR. And when you get there, there's a link on the right-hand side to my Facebook page. So if you go onto the Facebook page and you don't have to be on Facebook yourself to access the Facebook page and just scroll down and you can access any of the previous episodes. No one won the last war and no one will win the next. Eleanor Roosevelt, letter to Harry S. Truman, 1948. And I'm speaking to Catherine MacDonald about religion, blood, and the love of war. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What was it that inspired you to study religion, blood, and the love of war? I think what you have there is my very sexy title for the paper rather than a particular theme. I'm not really interested in either religion or blood, or actually the love of war either, but my field of study is ethics, and I'm particularly interested in the ethics of war and all the associated things associated with that. But before I started on my uh, investigation into that field, I thought I should do some research into the anthropology of war. And so Religion, Blood and Love of War is the title of a paper on the anthropology of war. Right. So do you think that we readily resort to war? Uh, Far too much, I think. Yes, far too much. It's... It's a very peculiar thing, and I think one of the the interesting things that came out of my study in the anthropology of war was a couple of basic assumptions people tend to make about human beings and war. One of these is that human beings have an instinct for war, and the other is that um, perhaps all war comes out of aggression and because we're aggressive creatures that it's in our nature to go to war. But I don't think either of those are actually true. I think... Religion and war are kissing cousins, so to speak. They have um, common underpinnings in deep in our evolutionary psychology to do with uh, group bonding, to do with um, transcendence, to do with the sacred and blood, the assumption that um, the spilling of blood involves something really horrendous and therefore has to be explained in some way in terms of transcendence. But our resort to war is something that's actually increasing 
and why that should be the case, I don't really know. Now, it sounds really odd to people because you might think that actually things are getting more peaceful. But it does come and go, war, and at the moment we seem to be resorting to war at the drop of a hat, almost literally, I think. For reasons, it's unclear. Certainly something to do with um, the current political situation, to do with terrorism. But... Why particular? I don't know. Perhaps because it's easy for Western societies to conduct war remotely and so we're no longer um, so involved in terms of great numbers. We're not, for instance, we've just come through the uh, November the 11th, the armistice, where massive casualties were, were incurred as the result of our going to war. Those sorts of wars don't occur for us anymore. They occur, of course, for other countries, for other places. Syria, for instance happening right now but for us war is um, a remote thing and perhaps that's in fact why we too readily resort to war at the moment. Even the terminology like our government sort of says oh we're declaring war on terrorism the way that uh, uh, war is actually used as an expression it doesn't really make any sense does it? No it doesn't and I think that's perhaps part of the the tendency to to exaggerate our actions of all kinds. For instance, I can recall somebody talking about declaring war on poverty, declaring war on drugs and so on. We declare war on everything. Um, And that by very... um, The debasement of the terminology in this case is one of the things that makes our real wars seem less significant. Now, there's certainly been less scrutiny of war. Why why do you think that this is declining in our society? Again, it's not entirely clear to me why it's declining in our society. Again, perhaps we can look at the debasement of the language and our tendency to be talking about wars on everything. It may also be the case that, in fact, we're constantly at war at the moment. There was... We're currently in Syria. Previously, we were in... Iraq, sorry. Um, We've been in Afghanistan before that, in Iraq previous to that. Australia in particular is particularly inclined to go to war wherever America is. We urge America to give us an invitation to wherever they happen to be fighting. But indeed, it seems to be the case that we're at war almost continuously. So perhaps our scrutiny of it, therefore, is declining in the same way that our scrutiny of the use of the terminology is declining as well. Again, it's not entirely clear to me why that is the case. But that it is, I think, is evident. What is the just war theory? Just war theory is one theory about the the ethics of war. It actually, people discussing the ethics of war and how war is conducted and whether or not you should go to war is as old as war itself, really. But just war theory has its origins in the Middle Ages with people like Aquinas and Augustine. And it was mainly, originally, mainly concerned with Christians killing Christians, which posed an enormous problem for the Christian church. But since then, it's actually developed into a whole body and discipline to do with the nature of war and the ethics of war, war crimes, human rights and so on. It forms the basis of international law in um, uh, war crimes. And you don't have to be a Christian or to believe in the Christian church or anything like that to have an interest in just war at the moment. Just war basically concerns itself with, with two basic principles. One of these is the justice of the cause, which generates the war. 
and the other which is concerned with the justice in the way we actually fight the war, so just means. And that includes a whole lot of um, sub-principles underneath that. So, for instance, having a just cause might include something like having a right intention, the proper authority, being the last resort, issues of proportionality come under just means, targets, proper targets and so on. So basically just cause, what just cause is trying to do is not provide a justification for going to war, but rather trying to restrain the horror of war by restricting some actions, by making some actions both immoral and illegal. This is comparison to people who believe in, in something like total war, in which there are no restraints. So under total war, for instance, killing of infants is the same as killing of soldiers. There are just no moral restraints at all. Just war theory tries to put restraints on war so that what whatever is the case, that there are some restrictions on how people can behave, that war may occur, but... We're not seeking to justify that. We're seeking to actually um, restrict the nature of that warfare. Yeah, well, speaking about restrictions, is there any international legislation that covers war crimes? There is. Perhaps it's a little unknown to most people, although it's, it's a shame that it is unknown, but there is something called the International Criminal Court. Some of you, your listeners may be familiar with this. This was where some of the actors in the Rwandan genocide were tried. It's also a place where some of the uh, war criminals from the previous Yugoslavian war were tried. The International Criminal Court tries... Crimes that are listed under the Geneva Convention, crimes that are listed under what's known as the International Humanitarian Law of War, and also crimes that are associated with what's called customary law. Customary law is, you know, believe it or not, armies actually have among themselves certain sorts of agreements that customarily determine how soldiers, how armies will behave. This is quite different, of course, to criminal gangs who may be armed and engaged in insurgencies of various kind. They're not really engaged in war. They're actually engaged in criminal activities. They will certainly fall under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court if they can be caught. But otherwise, the court really is bound by treaties. So everyone who's a member of the Geneva Convention, for instance is bound by the, the laws as they are judged under the International Criminal Court and that's usually where war crimes get, get tried. So what's the case when civilian populations are targeted on purpose? This is one of those cases where, in fact, it falls under the, the law of war. So one of the restrictions under just war theory is the targets, intentional targets. So there are two basic principles under the fighting of war, and this is quite distinct from whether or not a particular war is a just cause. So you may have a just war, let's say, for instance, the Second World War might be considered to be just, but perhaps the... War of liberation in Timor perhaps might also be considered just. So there might be a just war, but then we must also deal with the issue of whether or not there are just means, whether or not the war is fought justly. And that requires two principles, one of which is proportionality, whether or not the use of force is proportional to the intended outcome, and the other is civilian immunity. It is always a crime against the laws to intentionally target civilians Civilians are 
not party to the combat. Soldiers take on the risk they're paid to, it's their duty to, they, they're part of the deal, they're armies. But civilians, bystanders, effectively, and they don't take any part in the war. They're not paid to do it. They may or may not support the cause. They may or may not have any views at all about the war underta- being undertaken. And so, uh, certainly many of them are completely innocent. Children are innocent, for instance. So they can't be targeted legitimately. They can't be targeted. Now, that doesn't mean that all deaths of civilians will count as war crimes, unfortunately. Some deaths of civilians will be the result of unintentional actions, and this is where we get a whole lot of debate about whether or not an action was intentionally targeting civilians or whether or not it was an unintended consequence. And there are a whole lot of steps we can step through to basically try and work out whether or not The army in question was simply disregarding the civilian population, whether they're intentionally targeting the civilian population or whether it was an unfortunate consequence of military action. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and I'm speaking to Catherine MacDonald about war. Is there any military advantage to be gained by dropping atomic bombs? It's not really a question I can answer in the abstract, I think. It would really depend upon the circumstances. Generally speaking, there's not. There is not because, in fact, there are, these days in any case, there are certainly um, munitions which are almost as effective or at least almost as destructive, if you want to put it that way, as atomic bombs. And atomic bombs, at least at the moment, also have the added disadvantage of contamination of the area with radiation after the event. So you would say that the dropping of atomic bombs would be a very particular action that would require a very particular examination, but it's hard to say in the abstract whether or not there's ever a case where atomic bombs, dropping atomic bombs would be not of military advantage. There are all sorts of cases where it might be. So, yeah, it's difficult to say about that one, whether or not there's ever a case where for it or against it. Could you tell us a little bit about the book Among the Dead Cities? Uh, Yes, this is one of the things that's actually interested me. In recent times, there's been a number of um, commentators. Grayling, A.C. Grayling, who's a very famous um, British philosopher, has some time ago written a book called Among the Dead Cities, but he's not the only commentator. Igor Premeritz, a philosopher, Professor Igor Primovitz at uh, Melbourne University has also written a number of papers on this area. Basically, this um, book, Among the Dead Cities, examined the bombing campaign against German cities during World War II by Bomber Command in Britain. He wasn't looking particularly at the nature of the war itself, so he wasn't considering, again, he wasn't really considering the issue about whether or not the World War II was just... He took it that it was, nor was he looking at um, whether any uh, attack on, on cities, or German cities, was, was justified. He wasn't looking at that either. He was looking at the particular bombing campaign waged by Bomber Command in Britain. He was basically arguing that many of the campaigns, much of the campaigns waged by Britain were actually um, war crimes. They were war crimes because they were intentionally and quite deliberately targeting civilians. They were described as terror bombing campaigns for the very reason that they 
the purpose was actually to induce terror in the civilian population. They were also incredibly ineffective in terms of um, inhibiting or disrupting the German military effort, and that was also known at the time. Yeah, so basically Grayling set about to demonstrate through um, quite detailed description of what took place and the orders and commands that took place, the effect and the ethics of the bombing raids in places like Dresden and Cologne. He also did look at the American bombing of Tokyo, both the fire bombing of Tokyo and the dropping of the atomic bombs. The Interestingly enough, we think of the atomic bombs as being the worst atrocity committed on Japan during that war. But in fact, the incendiary bombing of Tokyo was perhaps more destructive. Indeed, it was so destructive that the uh, military command in Japan didn't at first notice that the atomic bombs were anything substantially different. They had endured such terror bombing of Tokyo, the civilian population had endured so much that the atomic bomb initially seemed to them just another um, bomb. So he also looked at that in his argument about um, the the bombing campaign in Japan was that contrary to propaganda released after the event, that the bombing campaign primarily was directed at civilians and its purpose was to demonstrate so it was a political activity rather than a military one, to demonstrate to um, Russia that the Americans actually had the atomic bomb. Right, I I think that women and children tend to be forgotten victims because when men are killed in war or, or they came home from war with psychiatric and physical disabilities, it's really the women and children who struggle emotionally and financially. Women and children are actually the primary victims of war, interestingly enough. Civilians are the primary victims of war, and women and children in particular are the primary victims of war. Um, I read just recently the statistics at the beginning of the 20th century, the the um, ratio, uh, these numbers mean nothing in the end, but the ratio was one soldier, um, eight soldiers were killed to every one civilian. At the end of the 20th century, if that ratio was reversed, so it's now eight civilians to every one combatant, and most of those are in fact women and children. Women and children have always been the most vulnerable people. Bombing campaigns, for instance, always invariably target them. And yes, of course, when um, soldiers come back, it's women and children who then bear the brunt of emotional and psychological damage. They often also bear the brunt of economic damage that's done by warfare too. Um, many of the the damages done to civilians, there's not necessarily directly just their deaths but also to their means of staying alive so their economies their agriculture their housing those sorts of things and it's women and children who suffer the most from those what was the situation with the israeli bombing or aerial bombing of gaza 2014 this is the gaza strip uh this is well this is incredibly contentious um uh, little act of war. The okay, the background scenario to this is that Hamas had in fact fired many thousands of rockets into Israel before um, Israel responded. But the rockets that Hamas sends across across the border into Israel 
almost all, I think about 70% of them, something like that, actually land in unoccupied land that is you know, with no civilians, there's nobody there, primarily because they're pretty weak in effective um, weapons. The, the stronger weapons that they have um, are pretty effectively dealt with by um, Israel's anti-missile capability, which is extremely effective and which brings down almost anything that gets within civilian range, the range of civilian cities and so on. So although Hamas had actually fired many thousands of rockets, it had done almost no damage at all, almost no damage at all. There was, I think, two people killed by, um, I could be wrong about this, I think about two people killed. One of them was a child, the other one was a tourist, civilians were talking about they did almost no damage. But that is not the point, really. Okay, The point was that Israel thought, therefore, they were entitled to defend themselves by bombing and um, invading the Gaza Strip, which they did. Um, again, leaving aside the question about whether or not their cause was just, and that that's an issue here, if you think, in fact, that Israel is in contravention of the UN... Um, requirement for them to leave occupied territories, then their cause cannot be just. They can't. You can't. For instance, you're entitled to defend yourself if you're at home and somebody attacks you. Um, you're entitled to use even lethal force if that's the case. But you're, if you're the burglar, you're not entitled to defend yourself against the homeowner. So in this case, we're going to leave aside the question of the, the justice of the cause. Um, I think it's it's an open question. But I'm interested here in the aerial bombardment of um, Gaza because it was just horrendous. And the question of proportionality and the targeting of civilians arise here. And a great many people actually thought the issue of proportionality mattered because, as I said, I think there was about two people, two civilians killed um, in Israel. There were something like 12,000 civilians killed in Gaza and, in addition to that, Something like 20,000 houses were destroyed. Um, so bombing from the air in particular, the people in Gaza don't really have any effective air raid shelters. They don't have any air raid siren warning systems. They don't have any means of defending themselves. Um, Israel argued, I think, that um, not only were they entitled to defend themselves, but the people that they were bombing, the houses that they were bombing, um, held Hamas fighters and therefore were legitimate military targets. But that really only makes sense if you think that the entire Palestinian population of Gaza is in fact member of Hamas and all members of Hamas are therefore military targets. You might hold that position, but it's, it's fairly obvious what that amounts to, I think. It amounts to targeting the entire population virtually um, as a military target. So the the interest here for me was that it was indeed out of all proportion and that it did, in fact, intentionally target civilians. Now, the intentionality issue here is going to be, again, a highly contentious one. Israel said that it had actually um, rang, rung people up to warn them that they were going to target a house, which they did, as a matter of fact, although they didn't do it always. Certainly they did it sometimes. They used other methods as well. But cannot escape responsibility here for targeting civilians by saying that we warned them in advance. The people of Gaza had nowhere to go to. The borders had been closed by Egypt and Israel. There was nowhere for them to flee to. Where would they go? How would they escape? There's nowhere to go. So, and in any case, the targeting of a civilian infrastructure also comes under the laws of war. 
it's not enough to say, well, we didn't target the civilians themselves, we just destroyed their infrastructure. People live in these houses. How else are they going to live if they're civilians? So destroying their houses also amounted to an intentional targeting of civilian population. Do you think that war is ever justified? Tough one. I would like to be an optimist and say no, and I have enormous respect for for genuinely committed pacifists, but most people are not genuinely committed pacifists. They're good-time pacifists. The pacifists when it's easy to be pacifists. I think there are justified wars, to my great regret. I think... I think the Second World War was probably the last great justified war. I think it was a genuinely justified war. I think there have been justified wars since then. I think um, the Vietnamese defending themselves against American attack were justified in engaged in war. I think the East Timorese in fighting a war of liberation were justified. I think there have been justified wars, but I think each and every war has to be justified on its own merits. Simply claiming that it's claiming that it's justified is not enough. You actually have to show that it's justified. You have to make an argument that it's justified. You have to argue and be able to demonstrate, that, first of all, that it's the last resort, that there are no other effective actions that you can take. And that seems to me to be one of the main problems at the moment. We're inclined to take um, military action at the first resort rather than the last resort. Um, for instance, what's going on in Syria at the moment? You know, we, we followed America into this and there is no obvious um, solution to this problem or no obvious suggestion that our military action is going to make the slightest bit of difference here. So why have we resorted to it? Why have we not sought other options? And surely there must be other options. Um, so being the last resort is the first requirement and being able to actually demonstrate that rather than um, saying, just simply saying that it's the last resort. Um, the war in Iraq was, was perhaps the most notorious example of this. The West's, including Australia's involvement in that war, was completely unjustified. We had no just cause to go into there and our actions, therefore, um, were highly susceptible to the issue of targeting civilians, targeting civilian infrastructure and so on. Again, I would say that given... The, the accounts provided by our various political leaders in, in the um, war, particularly the second war in Iraq, why is it that our leaders have not been held to, to account for this? I don't understand this. It's clearly they should be, you know, I think there's a prima facie case that they were engaged in an unjust war, so it seems to me that they should necessarily have to justify themselves before a legal um, court, and why not bring them before the international um, um, court? I think they should be. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. You're very welcome. Great show. And I've been speaking to Catherine McDonald about war. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for your company.